to at some point. Ask me. Yeah, water. Oh, yeah, I'll put it All right. That's lovely. So, well, all right, I'm going to go ahead and get started and say, uh, Welcome to those who are watching uh, from their home or from, from somewhere, uh, to those who uh, are living in this house with us, uh, and to those who have come uh, tonight. This is an exciting night. We haven't had anyone in the house apart from students, any guests at public lectures in a year, a little over a year. So this is, um, it feels very different a year later, but it also hearing a little commotion in the house, it felt a little familiar too. So welcome, thank you for coming, being willing to spend your Friday nights here. I just wanna flag uh, for the next, I believe uh, 11 weeks, uh, each Friday night we'll be having a public lecture. Uh, this coming week, uh, our own Ben Kais will be lecturing on the surprising good news of the fall. Is that the, or the fall as? The doctrine of the fall as good news. The doctrine of the fall as good news. Um, and then I'm a little shaky on what the rest of our, our term looks like uh, lecture-wise, but uh, look online or you'll probably get emails, which is, or you'll be here. Um, but anyway, we're glad you're here tonight. And so tonight I wanna uh, talk about five themes of Labrie. This is uh, a topic that both Dick has spoken on, Ben has spoken on, uh, and these are, uh, components of the Christian faith that it's it's not a creed of Labrie, it's not a catechism, it's not as though these are the most important things or the only things. These are parts of the Christian faith that we have found uh, important to emphasize, perhaps they're underemphasized in some ways uh, within the church. And I want to place them, I want to sort of situate them both in the life of Francis Schaeffer, uh, one of the founders of Labrie, but also a current cultural moment or an air of suspicion that is sometimes called uh, deconstruction. So that's sort of the where, where we're going to start and then we'll get to the five themes. But as a way into all of this, I want to want us to think for a moment together about pipes. Uh, pipes. Pipes do so much for us <laughs> all the time. Uh, when I first moved into this house, this house where I'm standing in this house, uh, is about 100 years old, uh, 110, 120 years old. The middle of the house is about 100 years older than that. So it's an old house. So I moved into this house knowing there were pipes because there were faucets and showers and two of the three outside hose faucets worked. We're down to just one working uh, at this point. But I knew they worked and I didn't think about them. The pipes that brought the water to me were, were hidden from me. They were behind the wall. They were perhaps in the basement or in the attic. And I never thought about them, uh, but something changed. Something changed fairly dramatically in my life. During a particularly cold stretch in the winter of 2015, if any New Englanders uh, remember that, that's a record setting snowfall in Boston winter. I happened to be the winter my daughter Lily was born. And about two weeks before Lily was born, we had a pipe burst in the basement and it has forever changed my life. My memories of that moment are a bit hazy in part because it was a hot water pipe and the basement was very cold. So there was steam everywhere. There was all commotion walking into the basement, people moving kind of to and fro, kind of steam and it, what looked like smoke everywhere. And you could feel the heat from all the way across 
the other side of the basement. And my colleague at the time approached me, reading my face and realizing he's about to have a baby or his wife is about to deliver in two weeks. Um, he's probably freaked out and she assured me everything would be taken care of. Uh, though I stood there sort of comatose. I didn't really know what to do and I took it all in. I walked up the hill and talked to my colleague Ben and said something to the effect of, I think we have to leave Labrie. I don't think, I don't think I wanna welcome this child into this sort of home. And Ben wisely encouraged me to maybe uh, consult with Sarah who would be uh, delivering the baby, uh, which I did. And uh, both Ben and Sarah thought it's probably best to stay here. So we did, but, and within a week things were fine. Water was flowing. Again, there was an amazing group of guests here at the time uh, that were helping, but every winter since, uh, including this last winter, uh, when the temperature drops into the low teens or, or even lower, I find myself vigilantly, even neurotically, making sure the house is shut up well, that faucets are dripping and that the most vulnerable pipes in the house to cold are, are attended to. I know where they are. And I know that various noises the boiler makes. And I know when it's making this, it, it has a certain hiss when it's filling up just a hot water tank and it has a different sort of hiss when it's filling up the water that's gonna go through the radiators that are gonna warm the house. And I lie in bed and I wait to hear this. And, I, and then I fall asleep. Um, and that has been my relationship to pipes until they stopped working, uh, until one burst in the basement, I didn't really pay any attention to it. I didn't think much about it. And there's something similar to this, uh, to how I approached my relationship to pipes in this old house uh, that I think is analogous to how many people, including myself at times, have related to their own faith. Well, of course, their faith does something for them daily. Uh, the substance of faith, the condition of faith, its possible vulnerable spots or weaknesses often remain unthought about, unattended to, hidden behind some walls until we face a crisis, uh, until the temperature drops into the single digits. And a crisis of faith can be spurred on by any number of things. We can encounter new ideas, and often those new ideas uh, come to us through people. And sometimes, this is a common story with folks here, these new ideas come from people uh, that well-intended parents warned their children not to spend time around, that they were bad people. And the children find these new ideas and the people presenting the ideas are actually really lovely people. They're really interesting, they're consistent, they're kind, they're generous. Uh, so these are sorts of things that can cause a crisis of faith. You can also have that, they can, a crisis can emerge through a major transition, going to a new job, to a new city, maybe facing your first pandemic. Uh, and a crisis can also emerge through significant disappointments that we face. Maybe you get fired from a job that you love you realize you're being taken advantage of by someone you trusted. Maybe you're just hearing the seemingly endless uh, litany of faith leaders who have committed some sort of sexual sin or been involved in some sort of financial impropriety and you're, you're, you're just disgusted by it all. Or maybe even a little closer to home, you find yourself seeing posts on Facebook by people that you previously respected that are saying things that you find embarrassing and disappointing and just mirror sort of industries of outrage that have become mm -hmm. most of the media today. 
Now, I kind of say all this, and I want to start by thinking about a crisis of faith, because in a very significant way, Labrie was birthed out of a crisis of faith. One of its founders, Francis Schaeffer, went through this. He called it a problem of reality. Uh, and this was prior to the founding of Labrie. It was in the 50s. At this point, Schaefer had already been a pastor, and he was a missionary when he went through this. And he saw a lack of reality and a lack of love in himself uh, and in the church around him, especially a church that was, had a fixation on, on fighting uh, and, and theological gatekeeping. They were too busy watchdogging, and this came at the expense of love, uh, love to fellow Christians, let alone love to a wider world. Uh, and this, this led Schaefer into this time, which we might today refer to as deconstruction, faith deconstruction. Though the language wasn't in vogue, and while um, many folks' contemporary uh, experiences of faith deconstruction don't map perfectly onto his own, and I say that in part because he didn't really speak at length about the exact nature of it, though it clearly shaped his work. Uh, I think in some significant ways, Schaefer experienced something that many people go through today. He spent somewhere around two months, a little more than two months, hiking in the mountains by himself, pacing in a barn, putting everything he believed on the table. He was putting it all up for grabs. He wanted to know what he actually believed and what was true. And he had the real, he held out the real possibility that at the end of the day, he would no longer be a Christian. He would no longer believe these things. He wanted reality. He wanted something that was real, that touched down into his life, not just something that he mentally assented to. Um, and everything was to be reconsidered. Um, it wasn't to be piously suppressed or thoughtlessly celebrated. It was to be considered and considered quite seriously. And it's a longer story, but Labrie emerges eventually out of the renewed faith he comes to after this period of faith deconstruction, as he reconstructs his faith after this. Um, and the experience of what it was like to have everything that you trusted in, that you relied on, that you believed in, feel like it was pulled out underneath you. The fear there, the pain there, the exhaustion there. I think marked him for how he spoke with people, how he interacted with people, and how he engaged with people who are in a similar place of feeling like the world has come out from underneath them. Now, if you're not at all familiar with this term deconstruction, it simply means dismantling anything that has been constructed already. You see this in city planning. We knock down buildings, we deconstruct them in order to use that space and construct something else. We see this in how kids play Legos. They get a Lego set, they follow the directions, they build Kylo Ren's ship, and they have Kylo Ren's ship for a couple of weeks, and then they deconstruct the whole thing and make their own, own Lego set, which is not as neat and perfect as Kylo Ren's. Mm -hmm. uh, we see this sometimes in sophisticated, high-cultured restaurants with the dessert. You can get a deconstructed <laughs> strawberry shortcake, which you get a little bit of shortcake on one side, some cream over here and some strawberries there, and you mix it uh, together as you want. But it's taking something apart that is meant to be put together. And as it relates to faith, deconstruction can be summed up as a process of dismantling one's inherited cultural and religious beliefs 
in order to see how or if they remain plausible, if we can still, if one can still believe in them. It's a deliberate process of doubting, of reconsidering, of examining what you have been given, what you have been taught. Uh, the term deconstruction itself comes out of French postmodern philosophy, and it has more to do with how we interpret texts, but it's sort of, it's shifted, it's migrated from that original meaning to, to, to be more something like this. And I want to be clear to differentiate deconstruction, faith deconstruction, the process of taking it apart and looking at it from something de like deconversion, which is ultimately moving out of the faith. Maybe it comes after the process of deconstruction and it's just chucking the whole thing. You see this in some of the ex-evangelical, hashtag ex-evangelical stuff uh, online. Uh, but it's, it's, it's something that, uh, according to David Kinnaman in his book, You Lost Me, 60% of people who are raised in the faith, and this is, I think, a 2004 book, if I remember correctly, so I'm sure the numbers have grown. It might be a little later than that, but 60% of people uh, raised in Christian churches deconstruct their faith after they go through high school. Uh, one author that I found really helpful about this uh, is a guy named A.J. Swoboda. Um, I was telling my dad about this book and he told me the fact that Swoboda means peace in Czech. Um, so there you go. But uh, he talks about, he uses another writer and speaks about three different stages or three different sort of the movement of deconstruction. And I'm just gonna, Put him up here. And then there's a, a picture of his book, After Doubt. Um, <clears throat> but the steps are confirmation, contradiction, and continuity. Confirmation is what we have been given by our community of origin. It is an inherited faith, one we receive. And this is not necessarily a bad thing. This is a, is a wonderful thing in many ways. I've inherited a faith from my parents who inherited it from theirs. I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, but as one enters a wider world, a different world that has different understandings of things, different um, takes on reality, that faith as it that, that has been uh, given and confirmed as it bumps up with other perspectives can feel a contradiction uh, that, that what they've been given doesn't adequately make sense of their own reality of what they're going through. Uh, and this stage of contradiction or an accumulation of contradictions in some sense is the heart of this deconstruction movement. It's this time where things don't feel right and we're taking a deeper look, a longer look with maybe uh, at the end deconverting, maybe going somewhere else or perhaps reconstructing faith. Um, but it, it's a process of not stuffing the contradiction, not just stuffing it down or pushing it away. It's also not setting up camp in the space of, of contradiction, but taking it seriously and moving through it and perhaps leading to a place of continuity where you come out on the other side and the faith that was confirmed in you, given to you, has faced that contradiction and it might look different, it might feel different, but it has deep continuity with what you've been given. So an inherited faith becomes an accepted faith, not just a rejected faith, a faith of one's own. And this process, I think, doesn't happen just one time. It doesn't just happen your first year in college. It happens often again and again and again. But in, in many ways, the first one can feel the most severe 
and so disorienting. Um, and so I like these words, uh, but neither Schaefer nor anyone else who's deconstructing walks a neat and tidy path. There's no one size fits all deconstruction model. Uh, and I think that's in part because for as many reasons that people deconstruct their faith, uh, as many people that do it, that's how many reasons there are. So if you have met one person who is deconstructing their faith or has deconstructed their faith, you have met one person who is deconstructing their faith or has deconstructed their faith. Um, and I say that uh, to acknowledge that each person's path in life is unique. But I do think there are some significant contributors to why people are deconverting or sorry, deconstructing their faith. If I slip up on that, someone just, I don't know, shoot me or something, or not, you know what I mean. Um, there's some common contributors that are happening right now. Um, and, and so the first one is just, there is a pervasive individualism. This goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. But uh, modernity, post-modernity, post-secularity, post whatever you want to call it, the emphasis on the individual as being the source of, of, of one's own life, uh, choosing for oneself is in many ways uh, the story of modernity. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas sums up the Enlightenment project by saying this, he says, the story of modernity is that there was no story other than the story you chose for yourself when you had no story. It's all about a self-actualized, a self-constructed, a self-realized uh, world. Um, and this is an achievement culture, a culture where we form our identity through what we achieve, what we're able to do. And we see, we believe that human flourishing comes through charting our own course, writing our own story letting go of whatever constraints or restraints the past might place on us and instead figuring it out for ourselves. And this is in contrast to pretty much the rest of the world and the rest of human history um, that could be understood more as an honor culture where human flourishing does not come through charting your own course, but it comes through fulfilling the role and fulfilling it dutifully that you've been given honoring the past, receiving your place in the world and your identity, carrying the fire that you have been given. So I think this is one just thing that's in the air. Everyone kind of is breathing this in. But the second one is perhaps more controversial, uh, and I, I, but I think it's undeniable. Evangelicalisms uh, being co-opted by or synonymous with conservative politics. Uh, and while this is not new, I do think this has been particularly destructive in many ways under our, our previous president's administration, where folks saw evangelicalism's baptism of everything he did with, with some sense of disbelief and, and, and being unsure about it. Many saw this as just a hypocritical move uh, to secure someone who would give uh, power to, to them. And you could disagree with me on the politics, that's all fine. I'm, I'm most likely wrong on many things. Uh, and that's not really my main concern here. My concern is that the evangelical church, when it has merged and become synonymous with Republican politics, instead of becoming a hospital for the sick, uh, the church has too often mirrored and mimicked the wider culture war. It's been busy throwing grenades at enemies it's been too busy doing that to help those that are wounded 
by this culture war. And in a culture war, just like in all real life land wars, the first things that get blown up are bridges. The church is as polarized as the wider, as the wider culture is. And in a culture, in a, in a culture war, just like in real war, there are wounded non-combatants, people that aren't interested in fighting the war, but feel the fallout and get hurt by it. The wounded combatants are people who just see things differently and who see this alignment as perhaps politically expedient, but ultimately unfaithful. Um, and I'll just say a word too, there's a, a, a common story, a common enough story of leaving that sort of evangelicalism and then just moving to progressive politics and then baptizing progressive politics. And I, I think if you leave one party or one, one, um, uh, one sort of uh, political position and just go to the other side, it's just as unfaithful. It can be just as lazy and unthoughtful and it can be just as unfaithful. So that's the second one, the fallout of the alignment of church with wider political movements. The next is the endless scandals uh, and attempted cover-ups within evangelicalism that have come out, especially in the last five to 10 years. Sexual abuse, financial impropriety, toxic church cultures. We could spend the rest of our time together kind of naming these things that we've experienced individually and ones that we know on the national scale. But I'm just gonna move on. Um, I didn't, we, I, no point in camping out there. The next, I think evangelical discipleship programs often lack faith differentiation. And what I, I mean by that is evangelicalism tends to gravitate towards a one size fits all overly cognitive approach to faith development. It leaves little space it doesn't really empower people in the church to understand how my faith is my faith, not just my parents' faith, not just my pastor's faith. How is it my faith? And how does my faith affect how I live, not just what I say I assent to? And I think part of the reason why so many people are deconstructing and deconverting is because they're not given resources or even space to differentiate themselves uh, in their faith from their family uh, and while they're still at home. So there's obviously more to say there. But I'm gonna keep moving. The last one, I just put half, hashtag faith deconstruction. And by this, I just mean the internet. I know some of you are enjoying us because of the internet, but the internet ruins everything. It's, um, and you know, if there's anything to what Hauerwas said, uh, that the story of modernity is that there is no story other than the story uh, that you gave it when you had no story. There's truth to that. Uh, if, you, if your story is that you tell online is how lame the church you grew up in was, you'll find an audience. You will find a community of people who feel the same way. And my fear is that the process of deconstruction is actually a very vulnerable one. It is actually a painful one. It can be a hard one. But when it is done primarily online, it does give you a sense of solidarity in this experience. It gives you a community that's beyond your home. But I think it tends to celebrate uh, deconversion as the final goal. It gives you sort of a clear path for, uh, for just finding your way out. When there is an uncritical reception of good beliefs as part of evangelicalism, this lack of faith differentiation, I think it primes the pump for an uncritical reception of unbelief 
once folks get online and follow folks on Twitter or TikTok or Instagram or listen to whatever podcast they're listening to. And it gives this, um, it becomes um, a means which instead of rustling through this contradiction phase, this lack of reality that so many folks are experiencing to come to some hard earned continuity or perhaps even a deconversion, one can quickly and lazily just step into someone else's story online. It feels like you're just trading your inherited faith, the one your parents gave you, for someone else's inherited faith, this time from your favorite podcaster. And so I, I don't think this has been a helpful move in, in many ways. I, have, I don't wanna just dismiss all of it, but I do think it takes a process that is painful, that is um, human and that requires interactions with other humans and, and can play just one side of it. It makes it um, something that's in reality exhausting and fearful uh, and makes one feel like they've been abandoned, something worth celebrating. So I, I, I'm just, I'm a, I'm a bit on the fence with this one. And so here at Brie, we see a lot of folks, we engage with a lot of folks whose spiritual or metaphorical pipes have busted. Uh, their faith isn't working, their basement is flooded, and they're looking for tools. They're looking for tools to either fix the pipes or perhaps tear the whole house down and start someplace else. And this is, a, this is a, again, I've been trying to emphasize at the end here, this is a vulnerable place for a lot of people. And at Labrie, we have things we want to say. And the five themes that I'm going to transition to are themes that really emerged out of uh, Francis Schaeffer's own life, his own crisis of faith. But we want to do it with a particular posture. And I love the way that Edith Schaeffer speaks about her experience of Francis Schaeffer's crisis of faith. Because uh, it shows, I think, wisdom and restraint. And it shows a humility that I hope characterizes kind of what goes on here and what can go on um, uh, with, in any other place. So she says this about the time while Francis was walking through the mountains by himself, pacing in a barn. Love that vision, like idea of just pacing in a barn. Um, but she says this, was I so wise as to know what the result would be? Meaning, would he go back to his faith? Would he ultimately become an atheist? She says, no, of course, I was scared. And when a wife or husband, a friend, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a son, or a daughter is scared of the searching or the struggle uh, or the rethinking of the other person. It's hard to know when to talk and when to simply pray. It's important to know when to keep quiet as to know when to speak clearly and courageously. Just keeping quiet can at times be the greatest work or activity of a whole period of time during which an event like this is going on. Surely not one of us has the wisdom enough to know when to talk and when to be quiet without asking God for such wisdom, time after time. So this was a, a, a vulnerable place for her too. And she's very honest about that balance of when to speak and when to listen. And I've already done a lot of speaking tonight and I'm about to do more speaking as we transition into thinking about uh, what the five themes of Labrie are but Labrie and, and so many other folks who spend time with people in this 
season of life, I think learn to be good listeners, to hear what people are actually saying so that you can take them seriously. And as we transition, I just wanna share one quote that I loved from uh, AJ Swoboda's book about this whole process. Because so many times the feeling of deconstruction, the experience of deconstruction is so disorienting and you feel like you're throwing your faith away and you're awash at sea. But Swoboda says this, he says, to struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign that we actually have one. He goes on to quote Oswald Chambers, who says, doubt is not always a sign that someone is wrong. It may just be a sign that they are thinking. Uh, and so it's a difficult space to be in or to walk alongside someone with. But again, Labrie exists on the other side of this experience. And these five themes that I'm gonna talk about are not so much doctrinal points, uh, they are that, but they're also ways to help us live well in this world, to live well with ourselves, to live well with our neighbors, and to look for that reality that Schaefer said he was looking for, this problem of not having reality in his life. So this is, I'm just gonna go ahead and put them all up here. Uh, these are the five themes of Labrie. Christianity is true, the reality of the supernatural, living in the shadow of the fall, the humanness of spirituality and lordship of Christ over all of life. And so I'm going to start with Christianity is true. Now to speak of truth today can be difficult. There is a crude and sort of simplified postmodern, whatever you want to call it, suspicion, if not dismissal of anyone who claims to know the truth or to have truth. Claims to truth, it is sometimes said, are just tools for power. They're used to control. They're used to oppress anyone who might dissent. Truth claims are often thought of as a sort of top-down means to suppress challenges. And as such, they're seen as violent. You can hear this in your philosophy class. You can see this on your Twitter feed. Um, perhaps even this came to your mind when I said that Christianity is true and something stirred in your emotions Christianity, uh, when I said that. And if that's the case, I just want to say that I'm fairly sympathetic uh, towards that. It's hard not to feel uh, as if this suspicion, uh, this criticism has some, some teeth to it. Uh, uh, it shouldn't be controversial or seen as a compromise to admit that uh, some truth claims can be violent and some truth claims have been a means to suppress discussion any dissension, and any differing opinion on things. To a point, this suspicion seems fair to me. To a point, not entirely. Truth claims can be a top-down, my way or the highway kind of tactic, a power play. And it polices borders rather than helps uncover reality and lead to conversation. Uh, we see this in, in both on the left and the right in politics today. People hear this. Uh, while they're sitting in the pews. And again, I can, I'm sympathetic to this. Um, that being said, I don't want to or feel compelled yet to give up on truth wholesale. Uh, I don't uh, know actually if anyone wholeheartedly wants to do so, if for no other reason than no one wants to visit a dentist who doesn't believe uh, in truth. Um, and while this top-down oppressive way of handling truth has been used inside the church and outside of the church. It's not, I think, the only way or the best way or the way we would 
hope, hope to do it around here. And this is evidenced in one of my favorite sort of folk tales about Francis Schaeffer is that uh, when he was often asked, if you had an hour to spend uh, with a young person today, what would you say to them in that one hour you were given? And his response was, I don't, I don't know. I, I would wanna ask questions for probably the first 50 or 55 minutes to see if I did have anything to say, to see what they needed to hear. So his posture of having a sense of truth was not just, I have something to tell everyone, but he wanted to hear from folks. And there's a, 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 a philosopher, theologian, biblical scholar, a guy named Drew Johnson, who sort of wears all sorts of hats. And in a recent book of his, he writes about uh, how this word true, how, how truth is presented in the Old Testament in particular. He says, uh, being true mostly relates, excuse me, to the reliability of something to support, to be faithful, to be steady, to have high fidelity, and therefore something in which we can put our trust. True can describe the fidelity of a boat's path to a course set in advance, or a carpenter's cut to a line drawn on lumber. True describes a surprising array of objects and actions in the Hebrew Bible, all of which are related directly to fidelity and faithfulness. Actions may be true. Reports and statements can reliably convey the situation. Most strangely, many biblical authors use true to describe objects such as tent pegs, roads, and seeds. He's talking about how the Hebrew word group that is related to truth has a specific aspect of entailing faithfulness. Even amen, what we say at the end of our prayers, comes from aman, which means faithful, which means fidelity, and also means accurate. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's pointing out uh, how in biblical texts, in the biblical world, truth is personal. Truth is relational. It's something we have an engagement with and a relationship with. It does what it ought to do. It is faithful over time. And as we move to the New Testament, our relationship with truth, one of the verbs that Paul often uses is discerning or weighing. It's a word that refers to the weighing of metals as a means to decipher which ones are real and which ones are fake. And all of this is a way of saying that a claim for something to be true doesn't have to be this top-down oppressive tool for power. In fact, in a, a pluralistic moment, it can be a very vulnerable act of humility when we can come and say, this is how I see it. This is what I've seen to be faithful. How do you see this? Does this make sense to you? I have found this to be trustworthy and to correspond to the way things are. And this sort of posture opens up a response. It opens up a conversation. How do you see it? How does this look to you? This is in part why we value conversation at Libri. Uh, not because a belief in truth means we have everything figured out or we have all the answers to everyone's questions or problems. That is not the case. There's plenty we don't know, plenty for us to learn and plenty that we just will probably never figure out. But we've found that the Christian faith is true. It's reliable. It's trustworthy as it relates to the world we find ourselves in. And so conviction and humility can go hand in hand. It allows us to hear what is going on in folks' moments of deconstruction 
and doubt and not just see them as threats, not just see these as folks throwing in the towel, but see these as opportunities that people are longing to grow and to grasp what is real. Now, the second theme, there's obviously so much more to say. I'm, all of these will be dealt with inadequately. Um, uh, but the second one is the reality of the supernatural. So when Schaefer came out of his season of deconstruction, Edith writes that he asked her, I wonder what would happen to most churches. I wish I could do his accent. Uh, he has such a unique voice. Anyway, sorry. Just as I was realizing I was reading him out loud, I was like, oh, I wish I could impersonate him. Anyway, he says, I wonder what would happen to most churches and to Christian work if we awaken tomorrow and everything concerning the reality and the work of the Holy Spirit and everything concerning prayer were removed from the Bible. I wonder how much difference it would make. Years later in a sermon, a famous sermon, The Lord's Work and the Lord's Way, and if you haven't read much Schaefer, that's a great place to start. He names this lack of reliance on the Holy Spirit as the church's central problem. He says, this is our real problem. He says, there's dangers. There's plenty of dangers. If anyone tells you the church's biggest problem is something with an ism after it, that's not the church's biggest problem, Schaefer says. The, the problem uh, is that we do what we do on our own strength, by our own cleverness, and in our own energy and not in reliance on the Holy Spirit, that we are practically atheists. Uh, we live as though God didn't exist and his existence doesn't impinge in any way on our plans. So in response to this, the Schaefers wanted to live by demonstration, not simply to be able to give people the right answers and some tasty food, but to structure their lives and their work in a deliberate way so that it would demonstrate the existence and the goodness of God, his presence, his activity in their lives and in the lives of those who come and in the whole world. So this is why Labrie, if, if you've heard, have been here or heard, we have all sorts of institutional weaknesses built into Labrie, which would make Labrie very easy to shut down if God wants to be done with this work. Some of those institutional weaknesses are we don't raise funds, we don't advertise, but we pray that God will bring the right people to our doors and provide for this work, both people to do the work and money for the work. And there have been times when this house, in my years here, my eight years, eight, seven, seven years here, almost eight years here, there have been times where the house is full of guests and the bank account is close to nothing and we're not sure how bills are gonna get paid. And we take that as a sign that God still has something to do for us to do here. There's been other times where the house is pretty much empty, uh, but there's what for us is a, you know, a decent little cushion of, of money in the bank, which is again, another sign that God wants this work to continue. Actually, when that pipe burst was a time when there were very few people in the house, but we had money, which was great because then we could pay to have the pipe repaired uh, <laughs> relatively quickly. Um, um, yeah, and, and there's, there's so many other stories. And this is, I would just say this is not a way that I would ever organize an organization. I would never plan this. Uh, and nor do I think it's the only way or necessarily a better way uh, than those who fundraise or have large endowments. It's just, it is a way to try to structure uh, the life of a work to, that, to show God's, God's reality. 
uh, to live by demonstration. There's so many ways to do this. I think part of the Schaefer's hope is to spark imagination. How do we live our lives in ways that show the supernatural uh, is real? Um, and I'll say, again, I would never have done this, but this has been a tremendous catalyst for growth in my own faith, my own life, in the way I pray, uh, in the things I ask God for. But awareness of the reality of the supernatural, living a life of weakness, a life of dependence, in prayer upon God, um, goes actually hand in hand, I think, with the truth of Christianity. Uh, and part of that reality of the supernatural is, is not just the existence of God and the goodness of God, but that we have an enemy, uh, that Christians have an enemy. And I don't have a thoroughly worked out understanding of spiritual warfare, but I've tended to associate, I've tended to have my thinking on this, and Shaver actually, sorry, talks about this, that our, our true battle is, is, he quotes Paul, is, is against principalities and powers, not just against all the isms that are out there and all the all the um, uh, all the other things. And I don't, I, like I said, I don't have like a strong sense of spiritual warfare, like an exact theology of it worked out. And I tend to let my thoughts be carried on how I think about warfare. I think about tanks and troops and bombs, images sort of like we've seen over this last few weeks with Israel and Palestine. And you could call this hard power. Um, but from what I gathered, the nature of warfare is changing in part through digital media, thanks again, internet, uh, to something that's like soft power. You might not be able to control the outcome of a fight, but you can control a narrative or you can set up a situation through deception, through disinformation or misinformation. Think about what has gone on in our own country, the state of confusion and vulnerability we are in through a campaign of disinformation, or the fact that some folks had a hard time getting here, not because uh, a pipeline had been held hostage by tanks and guns, but a hacker uh, behind a computer had infiltrated the system. Uh, things have changed. And so, but again, it's through, it can be through ideas, through misinformation. And a place where Jesus speaks most directly about our enemy is in John chapter 8. He's, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day, and he lays out Satan's intentions for us. He says that the devil's goal is to murder, to steal, to kill, and destroy. And how does he go about doing this? Jesus says he goes about doing this through lies. He calls the devil the father of all lies, the origin point of all lies. And he says, when the devil speaks, he lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. This is not how I think about the supernatural. This is not how I conceive of spiritual warfare. I think about disease and demon possession, natural disasters, big things like that. And I'm not denying or downplaying any of those things. But in one of Jesus's most in-depth teaching on the matter, he doesn't talk about that at all. He doesn't talk about those big things. He talks about believing the truth and resisting lies. So to some extent, our enemy's power is not like the power of a great military, hard power of tanks and guns, 
but it's like the soft power of digital media. It can control a narrative through a campaign of disinformation, through lies. So at least part of spiritual warfare, part of living uh, in the, with the reality of the supernatural is in a fight to believe the truth over lies. And part of that is the truth about us as people. What happens to a person like so many people in the throes of deconstruction who have internalized deep messages like I am deeply unlovable. I can never change. I am a piece of trash. We know the disintegration that can happen when these sorts of messages are played in someone's heart and someone's mind day after day, year after year. And this is a situation that requires something to say back to that, something to question the truth of such a claim and to show it to be a lie. And that is a powerful reality that exists beyond ourselves, exists beyond our best thinking, it exists beyond however many likes we can get on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram, but something beyond us that can set us loose. But we can say more about that too, but I wanna to move to the living in the shadow of the fall. And I'm gonna be brief here because next week, Ben is gonna be speaking on the fall. Um, but this is the Christian belief that things are not as they should be, that sin and evil have an origin. That, and, and this is sort of captured even in the language of the fall. The fall, if this world has fallen, it has fallen from somewhere. Uh, the, the, the biblical story, uh, the story that we, the, of the world that we read about in the scriptures, don't begin with the fall and sin. It begins with blessing. It begins with delight. It begins with goodness. The word ringing throughout Genesis 1 is tov. It is this word mean, that is good. It is a sensory word before it is a moral word. It's a delightful thing. But then sin, uh, the fall happens. Sin enters the world and it's an alien intruder. And it vandalizes God's original goodness. It wreaks havoc. The first explicit mention of sin in the scriptures comes in Genesis 4. And it's not so much a thing someone does, but it's like this creature that's waiting to pounce and get you. Uh, it is something that is after us. But this does not mean that a fallen world is a completely ruined world. Um, ben is gonna probably talk about more that more, I think, uh, next week. But this fallen world still has goodness within it. But it's a world that sees all sorts of disintegrations, separations uh, that had previously been wholeness and shalom and goodness. So we see this in a number of different relationships between God and humanity, between God and creation, between humans and other humans, and then within ourselves, between a self and that same self. Um, things are not the way they are supposed to be, but this can be helpful. We talked about this uh, to, at lunch today for a little while. Well, I guess I talked about this a little bit. <laughs> I didn't talk for too long about it, but it becomes helpful when we think about the expectations we bring to the life that we have. A lot of times we have expectations that if we do the right thing, if we follow a set path, if we do what's expected of us, things will just work out for us. But often that's not the case. And so we have an unfallen expectation of a fallen world. 
things will work out the way they're supposed to, but they often don't. And this leads to cynicism, this leads to burnout, this leads to embitterness. And un unfallen expectations can come from, from anywhere, from Disney movies, from books, from sort of the American myth. But it, when life doesn't look that way, it can lead to a, a deep resentment and exhaustion. And so I think this is a gift that the, the teaching of the fall gives us to have the proper expectations of the sort of world we live into. I'm gonna go ahead and move over to the, the next theme, which is the humanness of spirituality. Uh, Hans Ruckmacher, who was uh, kind of an original player in Labrie famously said, Jesus did not come to make us Christians, but to make us human. The spiritual life is not one of escaping our bodies, escaping our limitations and the creaturely, our creatureliness, but it is awaiting their restoration. It is the healing of those things. And central to this uh, is the teaching, the Christian teaching of the incarnation. God, the creator and sustainer of all enters into the human condition enfleshed as a Jewish man from Nazareth. The God whose greatness the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain enters the smallest room any of us have ever been in, the womb. The incarnation in John's language, the word made flesh is an endlessly surprising doctrine, I think. The word became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us, or as Eugene Peterson says, moved into the neighborhood. The word went fishing, the word drank wine, the word went to parties, the word laughed at jokes, the word might have told jokes, I think. The word woke up with morning breath, the word dealt with temptation, the word fought with the devil in the wilderness, the word disagreed with his parents, the word went to the bathroom. The spiritual life is not one where we attempt to flee the limitations of our body in this world, but we use them for what they were meant for, to honor God uh, and to live into fullness. And I think that a book that sort of is a long, lovely uh, reflection on that is Tish Harrison Warren's Liturgy of the Ordinary. She's an Anglican priest. Um, and I wanna just read a section uh, on, on this. It's actually talking about our bodies and sexuality. So she says this, um, this captures, I think, some of the humanness, the embodiedness um, of the spiritual life. She says this, the scandal of misusing our bodies though, <clears throat> for instance, uh, sorry, the, the scandal of misusing our bodies through, for instance, sexual sin is not that God doesn't want us to enjoy our bodies or our sexuality. Instead, it is that our bodies, sacred objects intended for worship of the living God can become a place of sacrilege. When we use our bodies to rebel against God or to worship the false gods of sex, youth, or personal autonomy, we're not simply breaking an archaic and arbitrary commandment. We're using a sacred object, in fact, the most sacred object on earth in a way that denigrates its beautiful and high purpose. Sexual sin is a scandal in the scriptures, not because the apostles were blushing prigs, they were in reality a rather salty bunch, uh, or because the body is dirty or evil, but because our skin and muscles and feet and hands are more sacred than any communion chalice or baptismal font. Ignoring scripture's teaching about the proper use of the body and using our bodies for our own false worship is a misuse of the sacred akin 
to using consecrated bread and wine in a Wiccan goddess ceremony. Similarly, when we denigrate our bodies, whether through neglect or staring at our faces and counting up our flaws, we are belittling a sacred site, a worship space more wondrous than the most glorious ancient cathedral. We are standing before the Grand Canyon or the Sistine Chapel and rolling our eyes. And when we use our bodies for their intended purpose and gathered worship, raising our hands or singing or kneeling, or in our average day, sleeping or savoring a meal or jumping or hiking or running or having sex with our spouse or kneeling in prayer or nursing a baby or digging a garden, it is glorious, as glorious as a great cathedral being used just as its architect had dreamt it would be. It is a lovely book. That's just a, a small taste of it. So go out and buy a dozen copies. Um, but again, being human is not uh, is not is not um, a barrier to living the spiritual life. It is the precondition for having a spiritual life. We don't leave our bodies, our imaginations, our desires, our emotions behind when we encounter God. We want the, all of those things transformed. They need to be sanctified. But we bring those things to God. We don't have to leave them behind. We can't, it's not as though we only can encounter God in a temple or maybe in a float tank or some other place. It can be anywhere uh, doing the things God has given us to do. So the last theme is the Lordship of Christ over all of life. And this is basically Lebris' way of calling modernity's bluff on the sacred secular distinction. All of life, not just the quote unquote spiritual stuff is what matters to God. We don't have to become pastors, missionaries, Lebris workers or theologians to serve God. In fact, as has been said many times around this house, I think Dick, you might have been the first one. I would give, I would trade a hundred theologians for a decent plumber, especially <laughs> when the literal pipes in the house burst. Um, think of Paul's call to the church in Rome, this group of people to have their collective mind renewed and to present their bodies as living sacrifices, their whole person. And then he goes on and talks about how and what they eat with whom and welcoming one another. It is, it is all of life. And this gives us tremendous vocational freedom. It is not as though there's only certain things we can do to please God, only certain jobs we can have. But in any station of life, in any place we are, are in, we can honor the Lord through the work he has given us to do, even if we really dislike it ourselves. Um, there's obviously so much more to say, but I've said a lot. And so just looking back through these things, these five themes, um, in summary, Christianity is true. This belief in truth does not necessarily make us proud and coming down from on top and forcing you to see things our way, but it is a way that we can humbly say, this is what we've seen to be faithful to reality. Let's talk about this. And the, the reality of the supernatural helps give us a word from beyond ourselves when we need that word uh, and that there's more to reality uh, than what we often see. And living in the shadow of the fall can help us set the right sort of expectations for the fallen world we find ourselves in without leading to despair 
or despondency or bitterness or cynicism. And then the humanness of spirituality means we don't have to leave ourselves behind, but God meets us. Our bodies are not a barrier to the spiritual life. Our humanness is not. It is a precondition of it. And finally, the Lordship of Christ over all of life gives us a freedom, a freedom to, to, to love God and to love our neighbor in whatever situation we find ourselves in in life. And to sort of close the whole thing, I want to think for a moment about John the Baptist, but I want to think through about John the Baptist's life <clears throat> through those three stages of de uh, faith deconstruction, confirmation, contradiction, and continuity. How an inherited faith becomes accepted, an accepted faith, and how it perhaps looks different. Now, I think by anyone's standards, John the Baptist was a different sort of person who marched by the beat of his own drum. Um, but we often forget that John's father was Zechariah. He was a high priest who worked in the temple. And that meant he was a descendant of Aaron, which meant his son would also be a descendant of Aaron and would have a privileged place in their religious community to work in the temple, to serve the people in the temple. And in an honor culture, not in an individual culture, not in an achievement culture like ours, his job was to, to, to carry the fire, to dutifully do the tasks he had been given. And it would be expected of him to, to sort of keep the faith and to keep working in the temple. But John has this radical countercultural break and it is more of a scandal in his day than it is in our day. And it would, I mean, of course it's extra biblical and we're just sort of thinking about it on a Friday night when it's a little warm or at least warm behind this light. You wonder the sort of conversations John and Zechariah had. Dad, I'm actually not gonna be a priest. I'm going to go to the desert and let me tell you what I'm going to eat and what I'm going to wear. <laughs> Could you imagine what it would be like around that dinner table? Uh, but John breaks. It's a countercultural thing. It's a scandal. Uh, he leaves the temple. John goes off to the desert to prepare the way. That is bizarre enough. But it is also a break with the paths, the expected paths of honor for the day, for his day. But ironically enough, John's work in the desert is also temple work. It's just that this new temple isn't a building in Jerusalem. It's his cousin. It's Jesus. It is the walking temple. It's important for us to remember as we think about all of this uh, to just jettison one faith's tradition uh, to find a new community online or somewhere is not necessarily a way to human flourishing, but neither is mindlessly just repeating and taking what you have been given. Sometimes we leave and we deconstruct, not so much to get away from God, to get away from our parents and to do what we want, but to encounter him and to obey him and to follow him, even if it leads us into the desert. Um, I'm gonna stop there. I think I, my, this, um, this recorder, which normally tells me how long I've been talking, uh, stopped working, um, which is, I mean, maybe it's recorded somewhere else, but, um, so I might have been talking, I normally look at it and try to, anyway, I might have been talking for a little bit longer today. I did, and then it died. I mean, it's been off for like months. Did you? Oh, maybe I didn't turn it on.
this is a lot sorry for uh yeah 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 we can, we can sort this out but um but at, uh, all right all right so, so um you're free to go or log i mean you know you're free to log off if you're watching um but we will st we'll stand around you can ask any question uh i don't I, I'll give a response. I might not give an answer. Um, you're free to push back on anything that was inadequate or wrong or lacking, um, or we can just have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and if you're watching online and you have a question, feel free to put it in the chat and then Michaela will um, tell me. And then we can go from there. Marty. I never thought that really helpful what you said about John the Baptist at the end. I'd never thought of that, but it just occurred to me that in a way that whole process began with his naming. Because when the question came up of what his name was, God told them his hmm. name is John. Mm -hmm. And all the neighbors said, no, it can't be John. It's not a family name. You know, he should be Zachariah. Yeah, yeah, Zach Jr. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and John and 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 Zach Rice, I think he couldn't speak yet, but he, didn't he write out right, his yeah. name is John? So yeah. he he was yeah. acknowledging, yeah, acknowledging this is God's child. Yeah, and maybe that was a little foretaste for him of whoa, maybe you know, <laughs> maybe I've got to prepare for yeah. a child that isn't gonna yeah follow in the normal way but yeah. that just occurred to me it's really really helpful what you yeah. said about john never heard i it, it just will go to says it in his book really, yeah, or really something really similar really to it. Really so, yeah any other thoughts or anything it's really hard up here <laughs> uh, um do you think this deconstruction trend is different from I don't know what happened in the past decades. Is this sort of the norm, just in a different, yeah, different set of clothes, or is yeah, this yeah. something that happened in the Francis Schaeffer's day, or yeah. what happened in the eighties or nineties? It's just yeah, 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 yeah. With the Greek, do you have any opinions on, on that? I have probably uninformed opinions, but or assumptions. But uh, I mean, I do think something is different because of the internet. I just think everything's different because of the internet um and maybe the internet um makes worse in some ways those other things that, that i mentioned all you see is the, you know if you if you're looking in certain places to get your news all you're seeing is failures of pastors political compromise um which is just never the whole story um uh um, there's so many wonderful faithful pastors and faith leaders who are, you know, in the trenches um, and who are just amazing people. Um, um, but then I think there's also, um, I think, I think there's a, I mean, I just, I don't know, maybe someone who's been around longer uh, or seen some of these things longer would also be able to say, but I do think some things are exacerbated because of uh, because of the internet and especially because of the ability to you know maybe up until like 2000 or some or maybe i don't know up until the internet if you wanted to find like a counterculture you'd have to move somewhere you move to austin you move to portland like you move to Asheville, 
Um, and but now you don't have to move. Now you can stay in you know Fairfax, Virginia, and just it's all online, um, or in Southboro. Um, it's all it's all you can find it uh, in a way and and have a sense of that sort of community with folks that are in similar places and um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I think deconstruction of faith is can be a, like is it for i don't think it's necessary for every person but for a lot of people i think it's hugely important and that process of differentiating yourself from your parents your pastor your denomination not necessarily separating yourself and choosing your own way or writing your own creed or anything like that but like what does this mean for me and my you know maybe i have this job or that job or um like what does it mean for me so i i think the I think it's been there for a long time. I even think about like, um, I really like, I, I mean, I, the book of Isaiah is so big, um, but I really like, I don't know the whole thing very well, but I know, like, I love in Isaiah six, he's like already a prophet. He's calling woes, you know, look out on all these different people who call good evil or evil good or who have imbalanced scales. And then he's in the temple. And I've heard a pastor make a joke about like, well, he, or, or, well, he's in the temple and then he sees the Lord and he's completely undone. And he says, woe is me for I am a, a man of unclean lips. I come from a, 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 a people of unclean lips. And I heard a pastor make a joke like, Isaiah probably went to church because he thought that would be the safest place from God. Like you'd never expect to encounter God in church, but like that's where like, God met him. Um, and so like not... You know, I don't know like the book well enough, but it seems like that, and it, like that experience. Obviously, it's not the sort of experience of new ideas, new people, new cities, or trans like. But something he he came out he came out different. Um, so I think something to and had to like undo the things, you know, he had been he had been taught, um, or or assumed. Um, so I think something of this has been around for a while, but I think currently it's got all sorts of hashtags and podcasts and there's a, there's a you know, there's conferences and there's books and um, Patreon accounts to get like more, like there's all, I think the internet has, has accelerated some of it and then also valorized it, you know, made it seem like this is, um, because I know what it's I mean I, I'll speak for myself sometimes when people are um, people who I don't know living in states I'm, I don't live in who are burned by churches or Christian institutions I have nothing to do with I like can feed off of the, I'm like how dare that happen like I can somehow associate myself with that person I don't think this is a healthy thing um, but I can it helps you know what I mean like it helps you or it, it actually doesn't help you, but you distrust those institutions or people or churches more. And so I, I don't know. I do think the internet has sort of changed the game. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. I was just wanted to follow up on that. I thought it was really helpful that you said with the internet, one of the things that brings is that there's kind of a story to step into that already has a clear path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, the path is already worn. Yeah. step on it, here's where you go yeah. Um, what do you think it looks like for individual Christians of Jesus 
tell a better story and not yeah. just tell a lie, but to to be able to talk about Christian growth and Christian maturity in a way that invites people into that process of deconstruction in a healthy way. Yeah. Yeah, the question was just um well the first question that Nathan asked um was just um are things worse now, which we can like is this is this trend worse now than it has been? And so we can come back to that if someone else has something to say. Uh, but then the, the follow-up question was how can churches tell a better story about this process, about what it would look like to go through this process um, that isn't just um the people online who've deconverted and who like, is is that a fair summary of your yeah your question yeah, yeah. what's the story that what? Christians and Christian communities can tell that invites people who are already in the process or who haven't yet experienced something like that yeah to walk through it in a healthy way yeah um, yeah without just holding up deconversion as the goal yeah yeah healthy ways where deconversion is not is not the goal I'd be curious if anyone has any particular instances of that that they know of. Yeah. Would you tell me your, I don't know your, would you tell me your name? Oh, I'm Jen. Hi, Jen. Hi. Um, I actually had a conversation with a friend last week about that. Yeah. She was deconstructing her faith. And I said, um, I said, essentially, like, this could be really good. Just, I encourage you to do it in community. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, having people Having people to talk to, yeah, having a community. Yeah. Yeah, Ben? I just think, I mean, that's the really answer, but um, I think there's a way in which they feel like the word you use was valorized. Mm-hmm. How, how it sort of captures your imagination. You're, you're connecting with a bunch of other people who've also chucked their faith, and there's a sense of togetherness, and as well as a sense of we know better. Uh, look at how much we've matured and we've seen through all the BS and and, and there, there's a lot of motivation that goes into that that has nothing to do with really grappling with what's true. Okay. It has to do with social status. It has to do with thinking of myself as sophisticated. To, and there's just a lot of, and this isn't obviously, I can't, can't say this as, as a generalization about everything, but, but there is... <clears throat> I think to, to try to call people back to, to authenticity, like, like who cares what someone thinks about you online? Who cares about whether somebody thinks that you have finally arrived by chucking your faith? Like, what do you think is true? Like, be, be, be authentic in that sense to, you know, have your, have your beliefs aligned with what's true and have that be your motivation as opposed to this kind of froth that we yeah. have online, yeah. which has, you know, maybe maybe it's maybe it's more a matter of just ex- examine your motivations as you as you yeah. engage in this whole process. What is um, and don't don't begin this process with a foregone conclusion of where you're where you're headed. You're actually think a lot about the story about Schaefer. Like he's really actually he's truly alone. Him and the Lord, him and the yeah, Bible, in the barn, pacing yeah, yeah. around in this barn, wherever it is. Um, and his primary concern is: Is this true or is this not? And if it's not true, I want to chuck it. If it is true, I need to submit to it. Yeah. And uh, rather than, Ooh, what will this person think? 
of me? Or will, it, will I get more likes on this? If I, you know, it, it, there's, there's just so much, I don't know what the word is, motiv motivation that has nothing to do with truth, <laughs> um, necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Just... Sarah? Yeah, that your observation that he was basically truly alone uh, makes me think like that's also it's a strange um, sort of intersection of if the air that we breathe is individualism in, you know, as Howard Ross sums it up that there's no story until the story you pick for yourself and there's no story. Yeah. Like, and we have this wired culture, online culture, like, I think it's worth asking, like, if we're ever truly alone. Mm -hmm. if both, both, like, do we have real relationships, and am I ever really alone? Because probably mm -hmm. both of those things are important elements to yeah. engaging personal as opposed to the individualistic and yeah i think um i don't know that's something it's like it strikes me as um there's a there's an illusion of individualism when really there's just it's too easily um sort of cookie cutter mm -hmm. You know, like, like you said, you, you, you so read you, one thing, yeah, yeah, and you get another thing, but it's different. So yeah. maybe it's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or I guess it can like maybe, maybe it's just that it, it's um, it too quickly is alleviating the the tensions that actually need to be yeah. unearthed personally yeah. for someone, and yeah, the difference between what is truly personal. And yeah, I don't know. I'm like, are you? I, I feel yeah, like the ideas are just like beyond my grasp. Like, like if yeah, if individualism is such a like a pervasive thing, like why do why do all like why are there hipster coffee shops and that are identical in Singapore, in Sydney, in Berlin, in New York City, and like why why is it why is there all these homogenous cultures that's you know or is that sort of what you're saying like there's a, a perceived yeah, yeah, individualism we think that, that we're being really unique mm -hmm. yeah um and really different um and we're losing what is truly personal in the process potentially i don't want to be too sweeping yeah. <laughs> but like we're potentially losing or not gaining what is truly personal mm -hmm. Yeah, or I don't know. I, I I'm still thinking about your pipes analogy, you know. And it's like if something's not working at the tap, and we just say, "Well, pack up ways and move house," without investigating the pipes first. Like that's a, that's a that's a miss as well, you know. Um, but it would also be a miss to go down and be like, "Gosh." Boiler doesn't work anymore, but it really does. It really does. Yeah, yeah. I, feel, I feel like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and to not, yeah. to not actually deal with the problem. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. Yeah. I want. I mean, I wonder if, like, time out. 
I'm just sort of thinking about people that are telling a better story. I mean, I think one thing that could be really helpful are, um, and I probably, I mean, I feel like I threw a few cheap shots even tonight at podcasts and internet culture, but it's just because it sort of drives me crazy. Um, but spaces where folks across the spectrum from, you know, deconverted to deconstructing to reconstructed to like could treat each other honorably in a public forum. I think I'm a big fan of the Jude 3 project, Lisa Fields, which is sort of a urban apologetics ministry. Um, and I mean, the, the reasons why folks in the African-American community are deconverting are, are pretty different than some of these. There's some overlap, at least from what I read, but she does this, this thing called Courageous Conversations where there's usually two uh progressive scholars and then two or faith leaders and then two orthodox or more conservative and they just have they all they have a conversation like they know the topic maybe each one speaks for a few minutes and i mean that runs all sorts of potential risks or hazards but like it's not as though if someone wants i feel like in 2021 someone wants to find anything you're going to find it like it's not like keeping people hidden from kind of progressive views or or dissenting views on anything is gonna um you know keep keep things safe i feel like that just backfires I, if, if you want so finding spaces where people can speak honestly to each other but also with conviction where you can say like i disagree with you on this issue i don't think you're a heretic and then also maybe saying you are like, yeah, this puts you outside of the box. Like you, like if like heresy means I choose um, and you've chosen something that goes against how Christians have understood biblical faith. Um, so having space where you can have those conversations where there's respect, but also direct. I mean, I've, I haven't listened to all of the courageous conversation stuff. I think you have to be a Patreon. You're all, you always have to be Patreon to, to get all the good stuff. But um, it's very different than what I, when I see like bigger evangelical conferences happening because it's like, here's 45 people that are gonna agree on these 115 doctrinal points. Uh, so you're gonna have pretty much, um, and that's an exaggeration and there's a space for that because people are also hungry and they have like their lives are hard i'm not saying that's necessarily wrong but i do think spaces for that and i you know i think um for folks that have well i've talked i've talked for a little bit does anyone else have any other or yeah that's good. i'm thinking about uh better stories as well and um two things come to mind one is um is just having conversations in churches in other places about the global church and about the historic church because i think so often um when people are like well church sucks or whatever they mean like my little evangelical yeah. church in texas yeah. or in kentucky or wherever yeah that's like full of people who voted for trump and Trump or something you know that's what they mean they don't have a bigger picture of mm -hmm. What what is even the church in this moment mm -hmm. means around the world and what the church is finding that? Yeah. So I think that 
perspective is really helpful. Yeah. And then also um, talking about thinking about being like alone, but with the Lord, like Ben said, um, helping people realize that like God's not afraid to be wrestled with. You can even see that right in the Bible. Um, when you have a conflict with some a person, the best you can do is to is to work out with that person, not to like throw Michaela and be like, "Hey, Joshua's lecture was like really troubling and yeah. really bugging." Like I should say that to you, right? Yeah, you just did. Yeah. But to say like, "Well, if you're having a problem with God, like, can you talk to him about that?" Yeah. Um, yeah. Even just to like yell at them to doing, are you even there? You know, mm-hmm. like can be really helpful instead of just going on Twitter and being like, I don't think that's there. Hashtag whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To just piggyback briefly on that, like the reference to Jacob wrestling mm-hmm. with God, you know, like that that Jacob himself says, I, you know, like, I won't let go until you bless me. But even that strikes me like. Am I even that hungry to know that I'm delighted in my God? Like, is it like, would I go literally go to the mat to know that God says yes to my existence, to who I am? It's that like deep sense of blessing. And I think there's such an impoverishment both of what blessing is and, and yeah, just like maybe a really anemic. Or distorted views of what we would expect from God. <laughs> so, like, but to wrestle to be blessed. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It's yeah, and that's yeah, that's good. Um, I I chose to do this lecture because I think I've said this to you, but um, I I my faith and theological spiritual formation have happened outside of. Labrie and, and sort of Labrie adjacent or similar sort of communities. So I hadn't read very much Schaefer. And each year at these, these members meetings that we do from the different branches, someone says something. And I, I've always been like, I want a little more of Schaefer. And so that's part of the reason why I wanted to dig into this. And it's, it was interesting. I read a, a biography on him. Um, it's actually dedicated to Dick and Marty uh, by Bill Edgar. And um, he talks about how like, Schaefer's legacy is is people. Uh, it's not a, a series of books or a set of ideas, even though we're talking about these ideas. But like he, I think, carried like his those his own deconstruction process, what what he calls a crisis of reality. Um, I think threw him for such a loop and gave so deeply marked him. Um, that he was so empathetic with with people who were in a similar place and took them so seriously because he was yeah i think he was must have been in some sort of turmoil and he knows that sort of pain the pain of when kind of everything you've been given feels like it's not working and you're so desperate for something you'll fly to switzerland to go talk to someone like him who you've never even met before you know like I think he was able to really, to really empathize and to take take people seriously. And I, you know, I think he um, read philosophy and 
and watched movies and listened to hip, hippie music and whatever. Because he just like wanted to know what language people were speaking so he could like say so he could potentially because he, he knew what it was like. And so I sometimes wonder like, yeah, the internet isn't just bad only for like the whole like deconstruction industrial complex. It's bad because there's like celebrity pastor stuff and the like implicit story is you, you or explicit is you've got a big smile and everything's great and um yeah you're so distant you can be so distanced i feel like they're just often um on on the opposite ends but someone who um yeah and yeah celebrity pastors are are slick and have large i'm not knocking it's like i don't know what anyone should do so i'm not saying that i everything everyone else does is wrong i really don't i just don't know what anyone else should do but like having these yeah having these huge churches and multiple sites and your service your sermon is like pumped to other sites um i have i must do something to someone's own sense of, of self and i think it can create a huge distance between people that are just just struggling and just life is not making sense the bible is really hard to read um prayer feels really pointless and perhaps i mean i'm not i'm not speaking of anyone in particular but like perhaps like they're so busy creating this content being this celebrity pastor they just haven't stopped to slow down and so i yeah so anyway those are just some mm. thoughts that you had to or what uh, sorry what was your name gustavo gustavo yeah hi right, welcome yeah so um when you mentioned the lab you were talking about the lordship of christ overall of life yeah um you mentioned like about vocation yeah or career or, yeah yeah um so i guess the question i have um think about sometimes is you know um you can say so you know basically from what i understood is you know you're, you can serve the lord being a plumber being a carpenter right as your profession but i guess the question my question is um you know if an individual does feel like they do have a vocation for something more theological um that could i feel like they could be they could feel misplaced in in a quote-unquote secular career right yeah Which isn't as you said, there's no distinction, but I guess something yeah. that isn't theologically. Yeah, 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 I get what you're saying. Theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I guess the, the question is, or I guess it just seems to me like there's a hard, there's a fine distinction that, you know, if you if you do feel like you have a following for something more theologically centered, so that you don't, I don't know, um, it seems like, it, it seems like someone who is called for something like that could more easily um blur that distinction i guess or not or see that distinction more clearly i should say they, they will make that distinction i guess there's a more of a tendency that person let's say like, that person's in as a, a plumber they might have a sense of guilt or something if they think that they were supposed to be called yeah, to yeah, do yeah. something like theology yeah and that could kind of make it difficult for them to be able to say you know there's holiness in this the simple yeah. plumbing task yeah maybe because that specific individual was called for something more theological yeah 
Yeah. So then I guess I'm just putting that out there because yeah. when you said when you said that, I thought about it, you know, because I do, you know, you can see value in all sorts of work, but it seems that there could be a vocation for something more specific and that could get a little. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, I definitely think um, people, yeah, can have a calling for, for like full-time vocational ministry pastoring. My colleague, neighbor, the guy who lives, used to live upstairs, just took a call to be a pastor uh, after being here for three years. And um, I don't think he's like moving down the ladder or anything like that. I think we're, we're equals, but I, I, yeah. So I think people can have that. And there are people that can run, run from that call, can have that. God wants them to do something, but it's easier for them. Maybe they're hiding in some, you know, other sort of work. Yeah, quote unquote secular secular work but the point i was just making i think is sometimes the guilt can run the other way where the implicit message is the real christians are doing this work and everybody else is just sort of second tier and i mean one of my heroes is um uh maybe not here is someone who i really and i don't know him super well but it's the guy who sold me my van um and sold us our truck here and he is a he is a believe this it's true he is a christian used car salesman <laughs> and he speaks about it um like his vocation is to bring honor uh to be honorable and to be honest in a vocation that's marked by dishonesty and aware of how frightening it is for people to buy a car who don't know anything about a car and can easily get taken advantage of because they're just clueless. And I mean, it's not as though Jim, his name is Jim Lombardi, Good Works Auto, Framingham, uh, Google. Ashford, Ashford, sorry. Ashland, it's on the border of Framingham. Go through Framingham, anyway. But like, I was incredibly inspired, you know, sitting in, like Sarah and I sat in his office five years ago. Ben and I sat in his office, I don't know, six months ago or something we bought a truck to recruit him i was just like amazed with this guy who can bring in a very natural very honest um kind of uh compelling what it just brings the light of christ uh into into a place where um he could probably do better business if he didn't and um so i i just I, I, you know, I'm all for missionary. My brother is a missionary. There's no way he's listening to this, but I love him. <laughs> I respect him. And like, my dad is a pastor. Um, and he, he's probably not listening to this either, but I love him and, respect him and the work they do. And I think there is great work there, but there's, and there is always, there's or quite often the subtext is like those sorts of jobs are um, the jobs that God, those sort of work, that's what God really likes. And everybody else is sort of second, second class citizen. And I wanna push back a, a, against that because I think any, any, any work that's sort of bringing order and goodness uh, to the chaos and dishonesty and sin that marks this world, I, I'm, I'm for. And you know, what would it be like to have a, a Christian man or woman in politics who has integrity and calls, 
you know, calls out the right and the left on on all the stupid, you know, package deals on both sides. Like that would be that would be pretty exciting, you know. So like, and I would want that for you know. So um, yeah, I want yeah. Anyway, anyway, I don't think we disagree, but uh, or anything, but yeah. Oh yeah, there's a question on the. Uh, it strikes me that McGree's emphasis on community, which might be regarded as a fixed thing, is an important response and antidote to the process of faith deconstruction. If you agree, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, yeah, what do you think? That's a, I, think I think it's a good point. I, I mean, I'll say first, anecdotally, like maybe this can sort of tie in to sort of a better story is um and not necessarily one but i think a lot of folks who come to labrie find labrie can kind of be almost like almost like uh like grown-up summer camp uh in a, in a in a good way because when you you there's something about leaving behind when you go to summer camp no one knows who you are and you can be yourself without you know, maybe you did something embarrassing or you had a, like a nickname back at school <laughs> that everyone called you at summer camp. No one knows you that way. And you, I mean, like, but you can connect in a real deep, you connect off, like, I think summer camp relationships can be really significant uh, for people. And for as much as Labrie workers do stuff or talk, like, I think folks come here and connect with other people that are here. And it's that similar um, it seems like you can, they can get to the heart of things quicker. I mean, not necessarily so. Um, and so Labrie can make a space for those, those sorts of connections. And yeah, some of the, I mean, it's sort of fun. I'm not great at keeping up with people, but when I, without, without fail, every time I speak to, uh, a, a, someone who was a student here, they're always asking, have you heard from this person or oh, this person did this, or like, because people keep up, because something is forged here in this, I mean, Labrie can be, for wanting to be, for, for as real as it is, sometimes it does feel quite artificial, uh, but in a good, in a good sense, um, because you can step away from so many other things and get at the stuff you really want to get at, and other people are like that here too, and so maybe our judgment of one another our implicit judgments are sort of down a little bit more. And I also love the intergenerational nature of Libri when it happens, you know, we've had, you know, times where guests are 30 years apart. So they're not all in their twenties or thirties. And I think some of that sharing across generations makes, makes this space uh, rich, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, if anyone else can answer any of that, if they, yeah, Ben, or just thinking the, um, the original sort of call that Princeton City has shaped or felt. So to have the brief be a demonstration of something. So it's not just the people are getting together and saying things, trying to convince people to believe certain propositions, whatever. But it's, well, we'll say some things, but we want the community to, to in some way, demonstrate the truth of these things mm. uh, tangibly. And, that, and that's where the community <clears throat> aspect is really important. It's not an academic institution where you come, or it's not a church where you come and hear a sermon and just go home. It's, we're going to talk about some ideas and then, and then throughout the week, you're going to, you know, hang laundry and do dishes and 
and you know, if, if grace and forgiveness and, and healed relationships are a reality in theory, they better be, you know, yeah. they better be happening. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, the whole thing is implausible. And, yeah. um, I think that's been, that's a challenge because it's obviously imperfectly demonstrated. Yeah. And, but one of the things we're trying to demonstrate, like any Christian community should be trying to demonstrate is reality of sin, but also the reality of forgiveness and healing. And, yeah. and uh, I think that's, you know, you, it's almost like there's words spoken and ideas communicated and then like the rest of the, the life of the community is the testing ground. Yeah. Like, is this going to play out or is it not? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think there's also that way that uh, if you've got a problem, like, I mean, of course, you're only here for at most a few months as a you know as a Hebrew student but if you have a problem with someone here it can be hard to get away from them where <laughs> like day in day out like if you have a problem with someone at church you maybe only see them on Sundays or and so the the impetus to confront and to work through and to forget like like hear one another and deal with conflict it's probably not it's not as much as perhaps it is in a place and in a setting like this because yeah you could end up having to do dishes with this person multiple times a week or split wood with this person or do all sorts of things and so you're around them and, um yeah i don't know i mean this is a, maybe a strange example but our strange instance it's, it's not labrie but i feel like it is an like in the movie american history x where he's in prison and he's put on it's a neo-nazi who gets commits a very violent crime ends up in prison edward norton plays it but he ends up having laundry duty with an african-american guy and he just like they have to work together every single day and initially he's just hardened and in his, like dead set in his white supremacy white superiority but over time, they start talking sports, they start, and it, it really changes him. And he ultimately, I mean, I don't want to give away all the movie, but he leaves, he leaves prison, uh, not a, a converted man in, in a really real way. And, um, I mean, that's a dramatic, or like kind of a, a yeah, I think a dramatic example of that. But things like that can happen in community when you can't really get, get away from from each other uh, as as easily and um, yeah so anyway yeah any other thoughts yeah Nikhil? um I listened to the Bodas podcast ironically oh where he talks with about me Nige Nige no, Gupta uh, with Preston oh okay yeah um, and he is talking about the dangers of podcasting and yeah. you can just sort of create your own comfortable community without ever being having any pushback to anything ever and he talks about how uh, you get the example of AA and that AA didn't work in COVID because you can't smell anybody <laughs> and this is how you know somebody's been drinking and it comes to a meeting because you can smell them <laughs> and how the Christian Christians need to be able to smell one another in the theological sense to just call their bluff. Oh, that's yeah. That's and wild. how this is 
what life and community is about, as you say, as Christians, but it's like that Christian formation needs to be deeply rooted in character formation. And we've lost this, we've lost character formation. Because we can't call each other bluff and still be friends. But that yeah. Christian life needs to be one where we can smell each other. And I think it's really, yeah, interesting point. Yeah. yeah, and um, I mean, yeah, I've been, it's interesting. Um, one of the things about Labrie that I like too is you never kind of know who you're, who's coming, but they're here. And we do this thing together and it's a, it's not like, um, which is sort of like, like church community. You, you might, maybe it's not totally, I, anyway, I'm thinking about what we can kind of decipher or figure out about the churches that Paul writes to. It seems like they're always infighting. They're always arguing, arguing. They're always breaking off into in-groups. And even, yeah, thinking again, I mentioned in the lecture of Romans 12, leading into, you know, 14 and 15, about welcoming one another and considering each other better than oneself. And um, they're not people that you're, they're not, they're people that are very, very different than you. Um, and our call is not just to have community that's, a group of people that's going to mirror back to us everything we like, but people that um, people that are very different and can be very difficult, um, and that's sort of where the, the rubber hits the road. And I, I feel like, yeah, Paul is using everything he's got to try to get these people to stay together and to become who they are as the body of Christ and to be, become become one and um yeah so it's i think it's been from the beginning uh from the earliest days you know those are i think the earliest i think those are earlier than the gospels and those are like the earliest witness of what church life was like and it was hard like community was was hard and was with people you probably didn't want to uh have as much community or you or weren't your favorite um people necessarily but they became your brothers and sisters and which is also paul's favorite language to sort of describe the church you're a new family and you belong to one another um but yeah anyone else have any ben yeah um i, I, I keep on one coming back to uh christina's question about a better story is and I, I feel like part of the maybe not that this is the point, but it sort of deflates the romanticism of the deconversion. Like, well, actually, there's lots of stories about people being deconstructed in the Bible. <laughs> like, this is this is a common pathway. And it's like, it's um, even the Book of Job. It's like broken down, but in the end, actually sees God. You know, actually knows God in a way he hasn't before. Or even even the Apostle Paul is. His story is, yeah. uh, in one sense, a true deconversion from from his yeah. understanding <laughs> yeah, yeah, of, yeah, yeah, of yeah, who yeah. God was and what his role was yeah, as, yeah. A, as a Jew in that context. But um, so that there's 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 like a well-worn path even in Scripture mm -hmm. of, of deconstruction. But the point is, the end result is is a, is a is a grasping on to something new and real. <laughs> It's not just cool. Now I'm free to do whatever and, and make it up as I go. You know, it's 
Um, so there's actually a, there's a goal, a place to arrive at. Um, I, I um, yeah, I think for, I like the quote, the, the, sh the short quote you had up early by the guy about, you know, it's a sign that you actually maybe have a faith, have a faith at all. I feel like we do experience that a lot at, at, at Labrie when people come in who, from their perspective, it feels like a real crisis of faith. But from our perspective, it's like maybe this person is actually grappling with the question for the first time, is this really true? Yeah. Uh, because I've come from a context in which it was a socially acceptable thing to be a Christian. All my friends were Christians. I went to a Christian school. My friend, you know, uh, and never really had to ask that question because <laughs> it was it was the path of least resistance. Um, yeah. And yet that that experience, which feels very un unstable, of like, whoa, wait a second, do I believe this anymore? Is actually um, a step closer to God because <laughs> you're now asking, is this is this true or is this not true? And that's the reason why I should either believe it or not. Um, is yeah, I mean, to, to me, I think that's just a, that's a really good place to be. Yeah. Um, but not to stay. Like you yeah. Said, I can't out there. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I I like this quote. Um, in part, I mean, I've I've said a different thing to um, some folks here of like, if I if I told you like certain things. To doubt certain things shows that you're respecting it. You're taking it seriously. Like if I told you my favorite color is green, um, there's no reason to doubt that because it doesn't doesn't really affect anyone's here in life. But if I said, you know, I I have the the cure to cancer in my back pocket, um, you probably would doubt that I, um, being being me, had the cure to cancer in my back pocket. Like. Why would I? I don't know anything about any any of this. Like stuff. Like I'm not a trustworthy source. But like, so it's worth doubting that because it because then if I actually did have it, it could be really helpful. Uh, it could change. It implicate like it's it's something that implicates you. But like, yeah, green actually isn't even my favorite color. But like, um, but it just doesn't really matter. So there's a sense like when yeah, when someone says there's a man who was actually fully God and fully man. He lived and died 2,000 years ago, and he's actually king of the universe, and he cares what you do with your money and who you have sex with. Like, that matters. Like, that matters and has pretty quick implications in someone's life. So it's worth struggling with. Uh, do I really want, do I want that? Like, so, um, you know. I think anyway, I think your question of a better story is is great. And I I think at the moment, like Christians are like evangelical Christians in America are struggling with like PR. And not that not that there's like not that evangelicalism is like the only Christian group. I mean, Catholic Church is also struggling. I, I don't think and other branches of the church maybe aren't even really being talked about. Um uh, that much so yeah I mean it's been interesting to watch what's going on with the now retired uh, or Russell Moore who was the head of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and sort of the heat that he took I mean up until he critiqued 
Donald Trump, which he never turned his back on, people on the left are like, you're a misogynist, um, you're homophobic, you're close-minded, you know, you're, and then, and then he spoke <laughs> against Trump, I, I thought in a pretty consistent um, way with a lot of integrity. And then his own folks were like, you're not one of us anymore. Um, and so I just wonder about, there, to me, I don't agree with everything Russell Moore says on whatever, but to me, it's something about when people on the left and on the right have a problem with you, I'm like, I'm just intrigued. And I want to hear what you have to say. And, you know, I remember... So I sometimes listen to Chris, Krista Tippett's podcast on being, it used to be called Speaking of Faith. And a number of years ago, there was a conversation between the Dalai Lama, um, uh, um, uh, what's his name, the former? No, no, no. Well, Catherine Jeffrey Shorts, who was the former um, very, very progressive Archbishop of the Episcopal Church. And then, um, Jonathan Sachs, who's the chief rabbi of London. Mm -hmm. And like, um, I was like, if I was listening to this and this was as someone who had no faith, I would never consider becoming a Christian. Like this is like, th if this is representing like Christian, I just, this is, I was embarrassed as a Catholic. I can't believe you're saying what you're saying. Um, and I loved hearing what the, like the Dalai Lama was funny and lively and, um, Michael or Jonathan Sachs, who I think is a brilliant communicator and had real integrity, was an amazing teacher of the Old Testament uh, or the Hebrew Bible, um, as he would call it, he would not call it the Old Testament, um, was so lively and engaged. Anyway, I was just like, ugh. but then, yeah, a, like a year ago, she interviewed the current bishop of the Episcopal Church and Russell Moore as an evangelical. Like, oh, I'd be being evangelical i don't know i was like oh here's so i don't know i do think there are some some folks who are in a hard in like a, like a difficult space again i don't agree with everything russell morris i'm not gonna like ride or die russell moore or anything but like yeah he's someone with with integrity and what i just bums me out is like i know 15 pastors who i think are men of, like men or women of integrity uh and who have walked a pretty difficult path um but they don't have any like no one's no one's telling their story and they're just struggling to get their church through this pandemic um so i don't know i i yeah i wish there was a way for some of those sorts of people <laughs> to be the people that the story was told of but it seems like the story's often told of Anyway, I'm just rambling. Did you ever hand up, John? No, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, hey, Dick. Yeah. Yeah, great uh, speaker. Yeah. Uh, Russell Morris, he's an interesting guy because he's, I mean, his, as we talk about different places where we, people coming unglued in, in faith and deconstructing things, they really are different places at different times and different things going on. So I, you know, it's not surprising that we can't sort of find out the thing that is the thing to raise or yeah. talk about. But for, his, for for the last year, his grievance has been that that uh, people are leaving the church because the church isn't isn't representing Jesus. Yeah. 
So it's in the name of Jesus, in the name of their memory, whatever it may be, of the Christian faith. The church has punted. The church has, has, has he's as a, yeah. uh, his place in the Southern Baptist Church, the largest Protestant denomination by a huge uh, lot in the country, has watched this happen and said, help, don't you see what's going on? Yeah. And so that's a very different kind of crisis than in the 60s, yeah. different kind of crisis than it was in uh, the Christian right. Uh, but, but it's, I was just thinking, the thing you referenced here is Schaefer's sermon that, that the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Mm -hmm. I, I think you mentioned that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. And that, that to me is a huge thing because it's just one sermon, but if we listen to what he's saying, means that we can't be a doctrinaire conservative or a doctrinaire progressive. Yeah. We've got to be with Jesus, yeah. which means we're going to be breaking with both those sides. We yeah. can't be, we won't allow ourselves to be politicized. Yeah. And so we, um, in, in the total sense, we own some things on both, on both sides, but somehow we've got to be free from that. I think we've been with one of the things that makes people scrap their faith and turn away from it and say, look, why should I follow something that's just a, a political outworking that, that follows people who are just looking for power, political power, in where they're where they're headed? So yeah. I, I just uh, the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Schaefer says so much. You, you can go, you can do the Lord's work, but in human power, yeah, and, and and not the Lord's way. You're not looking at what you do and how you do it to follow Christ. And, yeah, and that, that's where I think. That will give us a technique. That will mean we will make this. We'll be giving and telling the stories by our own lives. If we do that, that will connect with people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which, of course, I mean, it, it, we, we talk about community here, and, and the thing that's interesting to me, looking at the things you had up for those five points, you need all five to have a good community. Mm. You certainly need relief in the fall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you were touching on. Yeah. Ain't no way you're gonna have a good community if you don't believe in sin and forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, no way without yeah. believing in humanness, the value of human beings. Yeah. The Lordship of Christ over all of life. Uh, there is a truth that we're doing this under. We're not just inventing something. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. But but, it, but it's, uh, it's I I have been often wondering, having been involved in the brief for so long, um, you know, in 1970 or the early 70s, there were about 10,000 communities happened in America. Community was the thing. Almost none of them lasted more than six months. Uh, the ones that did last were almost always religious. And most of them, the complaint was, they were they lasted because they were strict and doctrinaire and, and authoritarian. Mm -hmm. uh, and so kept people in line rather than splintering things. Yeah. And I just think, wow, how did, I mean, the main reason Labrie has lasted is A, when we won the grace of God, uh, totally, that's the main thing. But 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 also the, the wisdom the Schaefer's had in knowing what difference between what the law requires and what uh, what boundaries we need for community and what grace we need to say this is freedom. Yeah. We we can let this go. We can disagree with this. We can have different behavior there. But that's a very 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 delicate line. Yeah. But incredibly important line in terms of making community work. Yeah. Where we say people have to conform to the, the, this behavior, and then we say, no, they don't. We can, we can all be different. Yeah. But, but uh, that, that involves humanness. Yeah. Uh, 
So, so it's a, it's an amazing picture of I think the Lord's work in the Lord's way uh, has it is what I think gives us so many of the things we have. Yeah, yeah. I just want can I say one thing about that? Just one of the things. Just thinking about like a better story. Even um, I was really struck with in, in this little sermon of Schaefer's. It's quite quite something. Um, you know, it's the 1960s. He's an apologist. Um, you know, he's supposed to have an answer for everything, and he is talking about part of the Lord's way is to be is to be is to serve is to consider yourself. He talks about how, you know, Philippians two is the, you know, the highest theology, but it's actually, if you sort of back it up just a tiny bit, it's he, this is what we need to do. We need to have this mind uh, amongst ourselves and consider each other better, just like Christ. And so he talks about how Christ lowered himself, and he he makes a connection to walk like foot washing, and um, he says about how. Some think this is a sacrament, some think it's not. And some who think it's a sacrament are not his tribe. Not like people who are outside of reform camp would say sacramental reform it when it. And he was like, I would rather be wrong and say it's a third sacrament than never wash anyone's feet. Uh, <laughs> like I'd rather wash someone's feet and under the impression that it's, you know, something that it's not than, um, uh, and then to just never serve someone in this way i was just so struck with that like yeah. it seemed so like i i don't know like it just really it, yeah it, it i was like this is like, this is an apologist like but anyway so anyway i that is something that i think <clears throat> that sort of posture you know i think catches like throws people for a loop and, and surprises people and i don't I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to say it's exactly the same sort of thing, but I mean, it's where, um, you know, 50 years, 45 years out from like the civil rights movement, and it's still like that posture of, of nonviolence and not, re not retaliating when you're being attacked. And, you know, some, some of the, not just sort of boycotting um buses and walking miles but finding some way to love your enemy because you have like a pretty real enemy i i i still think like the american imagination is people are still like what what happened there like what was behind that how did that how did that happen and yeah so there i mean i know that's a different sort of store i'm not equating it but it's just an instant where a community of people in a, i mean not in an easy way and not without leadership that kept being like oh let's let's keep you know but uh i think that is something that um it still captures people people's imagination and inspires them to live differently even now than they than they would otherwise and that i mean in part is because it's it's shaped by I mean, it's, it's, it's shaped by, by the gospel and by a faith that knows difficulty. And um, anyway, I just, yeah, Marty, were you going to say? Um, I'm just going to add one thing to what Dick said about, I think one of the reasons why Labrie is still here after all these years when 
so many other communities went under is that there was also respecting the actual creational structures of the difference between fam family not being um, the, the line between family, between church, between community. A lot of those, a lot of the communities that went under basically blurred family and there would be like an authoritarian ruler who was in charge of disciplining all the children rather than the parents and that kind of thing. Mm. Or, or mm. just um, blurring, not, not recognizing the creational um, social structures that, that God had created. That was very, that was very clear in the brief, something that Labrie workers were so clear with us when we first went to work with Labrie, the, the difference. We had a church in our house um, to begin with, as well as, mm -hmm. as, well as being a branch of Labrie. And um, the, our mentors, who were the older Labrie workers, were so adamant about the need to protect your family. Um, you know, you've organized the house in such a way, you can protect your yeah. kids. You're not just one big commune, the difference yeah. between a commune and family. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but also thinking of um, Nathan's question earlier, um, Schaefer, I mean, Schaefer was really big in, he was he really identified with the counterculture in the 60s and in a way that was so unique among evangelicals. And um, which was why so many non-Christian counterculture kids who had revolted against, against um, what he, what he critiqued as well as basically Christianity, a Christian form that had lost its base. You know, the older generation just telling the kids, be good, be sexually moral, blah, blah, blah. but no reason, no reason, yeah. no, but basically the Christian worldview was gone, but there was the Christian ethics still there. And that's so much what, what Schaefer related to was the, gener the younger generation who blew up and exploded into the sexual revolution, into Woodstock and all these things. And he related to those people so radically. I remember we were at some conference that he, that he was at. Um, I don't even remember where, Pennsylvania somewhere, I think. But there were two, it was a big thing, a big hotel. And there were two youth bands playing music, both, I think, from Wheaton College. One of them was the Good Little Christians, who were- That was the band name? The Good no, Little Christians? No. <laughs> <laughs> they were the ones that everybody, that the, that the 